Hello and welcome to the Sacred Reflections, a little series we're creating on the weeks we don't have a full sacred interview for you. We want to just acknowledge the strangeness of this season and create some space to process how the global pandemic is changing or revealing our deep values. So I'll be popping back in to check with former guests about how they're getting on and what this time is telling us about their sacred values and also hearing from a few of you wonderful listeners who've been sending us voice memos. As usual, you can contact us on Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth. So please do come and say hello. Although I'm also trying to limit or ration my time on social media. So please don't be offended if I'm a little slow to respond. In this episode, I chatted last week, in fact, to Sarah Stein-Lubrano, who is a DPhil researcher in the Department of Politics in Oxford and the head of content at the School of Life. She is spending lockdown in a studio flat in London with her partner. How are you doing? How is lockdown treating you? Well, it's been really interesting because, um, you know, I, I did a lot of labour activism in the last election. You know, around March 14, someone said, we're, we're organising mutual aid, which is um, a, a form of organisation that's been, I think, originated by anarchists and socialists, but um, is, is sort of less violent and revolutionary than that sounds. And it's the idea that instead of having charity where you you know, maybe have a class of people who have money and power and resources, and then they help a class of people who don't have those money and power and resources. You create a network where everybody is both able to ask for help and to give help. I talk to old people all the time, constantly, also young people, but mostly old people, because young people get in our WhatsApp group and they message each other, you know, um, but the older people can't. So they just have this flyer with my name on it and two other people's names and our phone numbers. And when they need something, they call us. And so um, I mean, there's lots of other difficult things about the lockdown, but one of the things that's been happening for me, in addition to learning to be inside as an introvert, as an extrovert, to have to not go out, is to constantly talk to older people about their lives and what they need. And that's been really interesting. Um, we're going to listen to a little clip of me interviewing you the first time round about what you said your sacred value was then. I'm going to kick off with... Uh, the question about sacred values, which I know uh, you will have, be, you will be able to look at through loads of different lenses <laughs> and loads of different list, disciplines. So let's just keep it simple and say, what are the kind of deepest principles that you live by that you would like to define your life? And you've had a bit of time to think about it. So what kind of bubbled up in you as you were pondering this? I think that the one that came up most strongly, and in a minute, maybe I'll get to talk about this through a religious lens, but this is the secular version, has to do with learning. Um, I think that really learning is the only way society progresses individually, collectively, and it's a very sacred process. So I'm really interested in this idea of how we um, can prioritize learning and developing as people throughout the course of our lives. Um, and I also think that I'm very interested in it as not an intellectual process alone, although it is an intellectual thing sometimes, but actually a lot of the research that's done in psychology these days shows that learning is an emotional process first, um, that we don't really remember facts so much as we remember feelings. And in particular, in order to learn or change our behavior, we need someone else effectively to love us in some way. So we need another person to look at us and be interested in us and think that we're valuable and care about us and want us to learn. And I would like to spend much of my life devoted to thinking about how we can make our society have more of that, because I think that we're all going to need to develop a lot in order for our society to work in a new, better, slightly more functional way. And for that, we're going to need the type of learning that comes as a process of love. 
When we spoke before, there was this real strong sense of learning as a sacred value for you both, the possibility of learning and the role of love in learning and teaching as well. I'm asking people kind of how this time is crystallizing or perhaps changing their understanding of what they hold sacred. So whether that your sacred value feels like it's still the same and something's being illuminated about this moment or if actually what it's done has shown you something else you felt you've you have that is a kind of deep principle or a sacred value for you. I'd love to just hear um, some of your reflections. Mm. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be sick of learning, you know, <laughs> but I do think um, some people will absolutely always do the right thing, but only after they've exhausted every other option and uh, putting aside the potentially offensive versions of it. I, I think it's a lovely phrase about everyone that like, yes, some learning has to happen because someone else loves you and they're there with you and then slowly you transform but the other type of learning that I think really happens is like learning in a crisis because there's just no other option. I mean, even in small things like the way that our office moved online almost overnight, you know, and, and so did thousands of other offices in London. Um, I'm trying to think about that aspect of learning as well. And, and so like obviously there can be love involved in those transitions. But I think the idea that um, maybe, you know, there is something good about discomfort if it helps us learn however painful that is. Um, yeah, so I would say I'm still focused on learning, always. But I'm, I'm curious about the learning that happens only because it's so uncomfortable not to change that we have to, at least at the moment, I'm really interested in that. And is there anything that, uh, kind of as you observe how we adapt to this, you know, as our own individual communities and our workplaces and also nationally and internationally, that you think is revealing what are the things that we collectively hold sacred that maybe we didn't realize that we saw as sacred yeah i mean i think we look i mean I think we massively underestimated care work that was kind of from day one really shocking because i i was thinking about you know well the economy is half shutting down but certain activities have to keep going right like the children have to have someone watching them and like food has to get to people and medication has to get to people and that might actually mean that someone has to go pick it up for them because they can't go out themselves and and actually you know the economy is not loving that the stock market is disrupted but what would really make everything go to hell in a handbasket is if the care economy stopped working and so I, I think you know I don't want to romanticize care it's hard work it's miserable sometimes um, but I do think that it's much much more important than it is economically compensated and it's very obvious in this crisis that one thing we're learning is that it's often much more important than anything anything not care related in the economy basically yeah and today is the beginning of passover and i know that you guys um celebrate jewish rituals what will it look like for you not to be gathering a huge group as you sometimes do holiday oh it's sad well we are just going to do it on zoom honestly <laughs> um with the smaller group of people because I think it's very hard with more than a few people on Zoom. I mean, I'm a, I'm a virtual course designer who designed Zoom courses and, and you can do very clever things. We could have done a huge one, but I thought um, in this case, I rather than kind of doing it as like, usually I do it with a lot of people who aren't Jewish and I'm kind of like showing them what it's about. And this time I thought like, oh, we'll basically just do either really close friends who asked about it or like the actual Jewish friends we have. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying, I mean, I'm going to sit down and, and, and go through the notes tonight, you know, and, and redo it and make it short enough to do online. And so it will probably mean thinking through like what really matters to me about this holiday and what matters in this particular time. And I think the most important thing to me about, well, there's a lot of interesting things about Passover, but 
the nicest thing is that it's an it's an anti-slavery holiday right it's an it's um and and not only that i think but it's also about people wanting to be free which sounds quite trivial but but organizing has made me realize that it's it's not so it's it's great if you're released from pharaoh's grasp but then the israelites get into the desert and they they really struggle to want to be free they think about going back they have second doubts they start worshiping you know idols and um and it seems quite strange to us several thousand years later, maybe. I mean, this story anyway was probably invented. But um, but I think really the, the point of the story is, is, is that it's a really difficult thing to yearn for freedom. And at the end of the Seder, you actually, in many cases, spend a moment kind of yearning for freedom. You're supposed to think about how much you want it, which sounds really trivial. Like, who wouldn't want freedom? But I actually think all of us in various ways struggle to want freedom. It's incredibly perilous and terrifying and scary and... Um, it requires that the things that go wrong in our life are to some degree more our responsibility because we've chosen the freedom and it's also a major challenge in political organizing because often you'll tell people we can do it a different way and it sounds too frightening to do it a different way so I'm trying to think about what it means to be brave enough to actually want freedom um, and yeah and how that will play out in probably a very different economic order once we're done with this crisis hopefully at least somewhat different and the final thread that we often touch on is this idea of engaging across our differences and with our disagreement. And it feels a kind of world away that I was thinking about Brexit and a different set of divides. Um, we often talk about kind of crises, crises unifying us, of having a common enemy bringing us together. Do you see that happening? Do you see anything to be hopeful about in terms of... Um, overcoming some of our divisions or do you think that's naive and it will just go back to how it was well can i be very annoying of course you can <laughs> yeah great um <laughs> look I, I i i think it's good also to be skeptical about what it means to like always want a common ground you know because um uh, this is something we've struggled with as well like in our conversations organizing with 400 people in my neighborhood who don't all see things the same way, of course, and, and they don't, don't necessarily need to. And I think that, that's sort of the, the thing that I really think is important even now is, for example, I really believe, and, and so do a lot of academic studies, that the number of deaths in this country would have been a lot lower if it weren't for austerity and cuts to the NHS. And I'm not going to let go of that no matter how much I learn to love my neighbor. In fact, I hold on to it stronger because I think this would have been better for my neighbor. And so I think the, the kind of common ground that I'm interested in isn't one without disagreement. It's just the ability to continuously, persistently articulate uh, why you care about them, even though you disagree with them and why you think there are things that are still wrong in our political system. And I think you can both like deliver someone groceries and their medication and tell them, but this is what I think would have helped politically to make this better. So I'm going to try to do that, <laughs> which is slightly, you know, less warm and fuzzy, but. Great. Well, well uh, let me know how you're getting on. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking to me on this little sacred reflection. Thanks, Liz. I really loved how honest Sarah was about struggling to adapt to life in lockdown. I'm sure many of us have had days and maybe weeks when we found it really difficult to adjust emotionally as well as kind of physically to the restrictions. Also really struck by the difference she touched on between learning because we've chosen it and we have a great teacher and learning that we do because we're forced into it. And we are all learning so much. Some seemingly practical things like 
how to work remotely and how to wash our hands properly. Also really deep stuff like the power of small acts of kindness and the primacy of care and the names of our elderly neighbours. And I'm asking what is obviously not a new question, um, certainly theologically, but one that's just now everywhere. What is it about us? What is it about us humans that that we don't live by the values that we claim to believe in so much of the time? I don't live by the values that I claim to believe in so much of the time. We need these extreme moments to tear us away from the distractions to focus on what really matters. And is there anything we can do about that? Because I, for one, do not want to have to keep living through pandemics. That's what I'm pondering this week. I'd really love to hear what you think. Please keep sending in your voice memos reflecting on your own and our shared sacred values and what this time is revealing about them. We may even use them on the podcast. Here's one from Tom, one of our listeners. I don't think this will change what we think of as sacred, but I think it will reframe it. I think we've always held our communities to be sacred, but what may change is what we view our community to be. In much the same way that the post-war period of national unity was only possible because of the horrors of the war, the pandemic has the potential uh, to force this this kind of refreshed sense of, of national unity. Um, by forcing a collective response, it's forging a collective identity. And I hope that that will be the silver lining um, of what looks like it's going to be a pretty grim few weeks and months. Thank you so much for listening to this short Sacred Reflection. Upcoming full interviews include Rain Wilson and Bim Afalami. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.